This is Mary Todd Lincoln. President Lincoln said that you could fool all of the people some of the time and some of the people all of the time. But he always said that you can never fool Professor Buzzkill, so don't even try. Let's join the good professor as he talks history, busts myths, and takes names. I'm getting a little hot and bothered just thinking about it. Twentieth-century automobile travel was supposed to represent freedom, but what else did it represent? In a minute, Professor Cotton Seiler joins us to discuss the difficulties and hazards faced by African American motorists in the twentieth century while traveling in the United States, especially during the height of segregation and Jim Crow. Specifically, in this episode, we're going to talk about how important guides like the Negro Motorist Green Book and the popular travel guide, Vacation and Recreation Without Humiliation, were to the reality of traveling while black. And now, over to Professor Seiler. Yes, here we are with Professor Cotton Seiler, as promised. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Glad to be here. Professor, what were these green books and travel guides that became such an important aspect of traveling while black in the United States? Well, quite simply, they were, they were guidebooks for African-American travelers in the era of Jim Crow. And mm-hmm. they, were, um, they were resources. And in some ways, they picked up uh, on an oral tradition, um, um, black travelers telling each other, where you can stop, where you can get gas, where you can get your car fixed, where you can get a hotel room, where you can get a meal without having to go around to the back. In other words, basically, where you could find establishments that wouldn't discriminate. And prior to the Green Books, a lot of this information was really just word of mouth. So it must not have, word of mouth must not have spread very far. You couldn't have learned about California if you lived in Chicago, for instance. That's right. But but during a lot of the the migrations of, you know, in the early 20th century and then around the time of the Second World War, those word of mouth networks extended. And um, especially if you were, um, if you were, say, uh, uh, a person from Tennessee who wanted to go out to California that's a long distance across, well, for African-Americans, relatively hostile territory, and, or at least potentially so. Mm-hmm. And so you might have a cousin who has a friend in Tulsa that um, had an extra bed you could stay in or um, a place where you could find a meal or, or a rooming house, um, you know, where you could even find things like a lawyer if you got into trouble. Oh, right. So oh. these were these were informal networks, um, mostly communicated orally, um, that then in um, really beginning in the 1930s, some entrepreneurs began to uh, began to, to publish it, began to um, seek out from people uh, sort of testimonials and recommendations of places where they've stayed, where they've eaten, um, and began to actually publish this stuff. So it became more standardized. And for the businesses themselves, 
uh, it was a good deal because you potentially had a lot more travelers coming your way. Yeah, but it seems that the the discrimination and the sort of having to have you know separate guides or or a guide for African Americans sort of goes against the freedom and excitement of the of travel car travel for the kind of average person in the United States after the after the war anyway it seems that that you know there's a lot of glory about the open road and things like that for white people it turns out for white people but not for African Americans absolutely is that what uh, is a stark contrast is what I what I, I was just is always amazing to me first of all how big it was and how long it lasted yeah um when I first started doing this research um, I, I came to this, you know, thinking about the interstate highway system and our commitment to automobility mm-hmm. and more generally how, um, mobility is built in to the American myth that, that we're, we're a nation that's ever in motion. And that one of the marks of our freedom is the fact that we can go wherever we want. Mm-hmm. And if we think about how the car facilitated that and expanded it exponentially. Yeah. The question then becomes, was that, was that really the case for everybody? And of course, what you see is it's not that the mobility that we prize so highly is, is a resource and um, it's a resource that's not really equally distributed (laughs) across the American population precisely because mobility is the mark of a free person. Um, there were restrictions on the mobility of people of color, especially, um, well under slavery, obviously that's the most egregious restriction of mobility there is, but after slavery restrictions on, um, where people of color could go, where they could live, when they could travel, all of these things Mm -hmm. that, really we don't we don't really think about as being part of the american you know big mythos of freedom and and mobility and you one of the things you mentioned in your book is that uh because of this african americans when they had to travel far or wanted to travel far often felt a sense of dread and i really picked up on that word because it's so strong and and uh, I can't imagine, you know, driving down to Florida and wanting to go visit Florida and the beaches and all, but also having this sense of dread. Yeah, no, it's 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 really true that that what we think of as sort of the open road and the going out to explore America and to find oneself and to be free on the road. That's a very white enterprise, and <laughs> it's uh-huh. it's a very white experience. And yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny you should say that, especially if you had to drive through the through the deep south to get to a place like Florida. You could, if you were an African American driver, you were you were going through um, towns and cities where you know uh, bad things could happen to you. Not just embarrassing things, but yeah. um, we're talking also the this is the not exactly the heyday, more the tail end, but lynching was still a widespread phenomenon. Yes, and I know. It's terrible. Lynching was caught, was, you know, somebody could be lynched for a multitude of reasons, but one might just be being an African-American person with a nice car. Yeah. And I mean, imagine traveling with your family or things like that might not have made any difference to lynchers, to the KKK. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it was, 
it was it was scary. And so to have this resource to at least have these little sanctuary points along the way of what might otherwise be a very um, menacing journey, uh, yeah. really, really important. And so who, 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 sorry, who actually started the guides? Did, it, did a company start them or did a person start them? Or? It, it, was, um, it was an entrepreneur um, from New York named Victor Green. Mm-hmm. And he started the first one, which is which was called the Negro Motorist Green Book, and Green okay. Green clearly named it after himself. But he also the 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 term Green Book was a play on the um, the American Automobile Association's Blue Book. Which oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, in many ways, was a precursor of of an of a road atlas. Uh-huh. It was basically before you had standardized roadmaps, you had these sort of road guides put out by the American Automobile Association and mm-hmm. it's called the blue book. And it ran, I think it, uh, it probably went out of business in the late 1920s. And Victor Green picked up on this idea and he said, well, this is certainly a resource that, that drivers of color could use. And so he began to solicit testimonials and recommendations from a network of people um, around the country. Green himself was a travel agent, and I think he was also a postal carrier. So I oh, right. had a broad <laughs> network of people, and he knew about um, you know destinations and um, probably had a pretty good sense of if, if his African-American clients wanted to go on vacation, where would be the best places to do that? And at the time, there were also... Um, uh, under Jim Crow, there were African American destination vacation sites. Um, oh, entire sites. Yeah, yeah, little beach communities and, and things like that. Um, that you know he would he would cater to, and so he knew a lot already. Uh-huh. But he would um, he would actually pay people. I think it was sort of um, a dollar, or maybe by the 1940s up to five dollars for um, for testimonials that would eventually go Hmm. into the green book. And that was the way that he sort of was able to get the best information. And, um, you know, I guess he'd have to edit it if some, if a traveler wrote to him and said that place is now not what it used to be or (laughs) something like that. But yeah, basically it, it was, it was taking that, that oral tradition and putting it down on paper and, um, were states, uh, was it just the South that was covered or was it the entire country or was it, you know, was, spotty was, in the North, mainly in the South? It was the entire country. I think the, wow. I think that was the ambition at first. And, um, uh, the, the early ones are more sort of East coast heavy and, um, yeah. South heavy. Um, but eventually greens, uh, the Negro motorist green book, and then other travel guides extended to, to the entire country. Wow. And are and are just there's such interesting documents because of both what they are, but also the way in which they they describe themselves and they describe their aims. Uh-huh. And um you know, and they both they both said very explicitly, we want to put ourselves out of business. So we look forward to the day when this enterprise is no longer needed. Which yeah, is remarkable. I, I mean, that's yeah, that's right. 
but they'd say, you know, until the day when all travelers can, can, um, you know, move around the country with, with freedom, this guide is necessary. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the, uh, when I was reading both the ar- an article you wrote about this, but also look at something, looking at some of the green books that are available online to the New York public library and places like that. I noticed that they use a lot of euphemisms for, you know, racial discrimination or racial harassment or things like that. And like they would say, travel with avoid embarrassment, yeah. travel with recreation without humiliation. That just, they just sound, uh, it sounds that they're euphemisms, but they sound so loaded. Yeah. Well, and, um, I mean, it, it's interesting because these guidebooks, they also want to encourage travel. Yeah. So yeah. they actually don't mention very much. It's, it's sort of, it's bracketed, but mention danger. And so uh-huh. embarrassment and humiliation, which are bad enough, <laughs> um, are, are the way, the ways in which they sort of say, if you use our, if you use this guide, um, you will avoid those situations where you might be called racial epithets. You might be refused service. You might be put in jail by some small town sheriff or something like that. But yeah, I mean, and if you th- also think about, um, the, their readership, they, they sort of, they address a very middle-class clientele, which oh, okay. for whom that type of embarrassment or humiliation, um, you know, would, would just absolutely strip away any sort of class privilege that they had. And once again, um, make their racial identity, bring it to the forefront. And so I mean, you were a nicely dressed um, uh, American couple or family traveling somewhere in the South and you went into a nice restaurant or a nice hotel and to be refused service. I mean, imagine just the humiliation um, of, of that experience. So these guidebooks were sort of, we don't want this to happen to you. We know you're a traveler. We know that you have yeah. you have the money to travel. And... Um, uh, you really need this guidebook to avoid embarrassment. Yeah, that, that was also, I thought, a significant thing that, you know, especially after the war, uh, there, there were enough African-American people of, of middle class who could afford a car, a car, could afford to take the time off work to travel, could could afford to literally travel. And so that must have not only increased sales, but in all these, if you will, hotspots must have increased the kind of problems that they ran into. Yeah, Absolutely. And I mean, these guidebooks definitely—they address that audience, and you see it in the covers, you see it in the rhetoric, the editorial copy. But it's important to remember too that the the travelers who either were the precursors who supplied a lot of the information that that eventually made it into the guidebook, or were the precursors of these types of travelers, were professional travelers, were were, were athletes. And oh, musicians. okay. And sales, oh, oh, oh. who were who were sort of gathering this intelligence as the sort of pioneers of of, of driving while black, and so yeah. um, in fact, you know, you, you think about Negro leagues baseball teams and where they could where they could stay as they were traveling around the country, um, and musicians were um, 
or another constituency there. In mm-hmm. fact, the the founder of what I think is, I mean, the Green Book is fascinating, but the publication called Travel Guide, Vacation and Recreation Without Humiliation yeah. is in many ways um, more fascinating. And it's begun by a, by a uh, band leader named Billy Butler. And Billy Butler um, spends a lot of his time traveling with, with jazz bands um, along the, the sort of the, the African-American musical and theatrical circuit around the South. And the, there's a great story about how um, this was when he was eulogized at his funeral. Someone told a story about Billy Butler and some other musicians going into a small town restaurant in Alabama or Mississippi or something and being refused service. And they went back to the wardrobe unit of the traveling show they were in and they got on um, capes and um, a headdress and things like that, <laughs> turbans, and, and went back to the restaurant and was served as, as foreign dignitaries or traveling, you know, <laughs> exotic <laughs> visitors from wherever. And got this idea that, yeah, this is, I need to, you know, and it's probably a, a good business enterprise to, to start uh, a periodical like this. Do we know how they uh, rated the the hotels and restaurants? Was it like four stars or five stars or uh, is it just, you know, don't go here, just either or this is racist or this is not racist or this is okay, this is not okay? Yeah, and I don't Sort of <laughs> levels of, you know. Yeah, it wasn't like the Michelin Guide or the Duncan Hines uh-huh. um, uh, periodicals. It was really, as I understand it, it was kind of just the facts. Here's where this is. Here's maybe what they serve. Here's uh-huh. here's the name of the attorney. I don't think there's 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 not a lot of commentary in the listings themselves. There are right. advertisements that sort of um, uh, specify what what type of business or what you can expect there, but. The listings themselves were really um, pretty bare bones and factual. Right. Um, do Do we know, like, if there was a reaction from white people, from business owners, hotel owners, restaurant owners, about, you know, we're in the green book or, you know, they were upset about not, not being in the green book or being rated poorly in the green book, told people to stay that's, away? That's a really interesting question because there's there's very little in the archive about that. Um, certainly the strategy of the green book and of travel guide was to, to make it known to white businesses, the type of, of trade that they were losing. Yeah. yeah. By discriminating by being a Jim Crow establishment. Here were these well-heeled, um, uh, certainly financially solvent, sophisticated African-American travelers and your business was losing out if you were going to um, turn this trade away. Yeah. So there's certainly, and Travel Guide a couple times, and I think Green Book too makes that appeal. The only instance that I found in my research of, of a business that, and I'm, I may be making an assumption that it's a white business, but it was a letter from somebody from Dickinson, North Dakota. Right. And they said, um, 
something along the lines of uh, we encourage we encourage black travelers to visit North Dakota. Um, we have great facilities here, and 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 North Dakotans really want to get to know um, a part of our population that we don't know. So right, it's, right. it's very it's very kind of I mean. In an era of, of, of Jim Crow and so much racial hatred, to hear somebody from North, Car- North Dakota saying, come on out to North Dakota, you know, yeah. you'll be welcomed here, is, um, it, it was kind of uplifting to, 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 to find that. But that's the only time I saw um, uh, a white business owner, uh, I, should, I should say this is a hotel owner that wrote this. Yeah, 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 and there there were some um, some businesses that Travel Guide um, profiled. Um, Scanly Liquor. There was a TV manufacturer that clearly wanted to represent itself as racially progressive in order to um, um, well to to attract African American customers. Uh, this is probably a good time for us to take a little break. We've got to go uh, get a sponsorship break from from our network. So uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes. All right, we're back with Professor Seiler. Professor, how long did the travel guide and the green book last? Uh, they lasted um, from as African-American-directed businesses. Uh-huh. They lasted... Um, until the late 1950s. Oh, okay. Um, the Green Book would, I think it would drop the, the, the Negro from its name and sort of, and become a more generalized guide until um, 1964 or so. And it's okay. really interesting to me that, that, it's the, uh, that it's the late 50s and early 60s that they begin to, well, they just... They just don't have the same purchase. And one of the things that we see is that uh, in the era of civil rights and desegregation, a lot of these uh, African-American businesses, they close up shop. And part of that is good news because, of course, there's integration. Yeah, yeah. But part of it is really a loss of these um these really vibrant businesses, or you think about something like the Negro Leagues, which, which was baseball, yeah, yeah, its own had its own style of play and was and was incredibly vibrant and was a real going concern. Mm-hmm. But for the for the travel guides, I argue that what killed them was the interstate highway system. Oh, I see. And so people I go say, long distances without stopping. Yeah, or not stopping much. Yeah, so that's that's one element of it. The fact that the these were limited access highways, where you didn't have to pass through the small towns anymore. Right, Instead, you couldn't you see that off. you're in the car, and yeah, okay. Yeah, and you could also go at high speed. Uh-huh. Um, high speed rendered you kind of anonymous. Um, it was more difficult to sort of discern somebody's racial or gender identity to when you're going pretty fast and you're sort of, you're being sort of anonymized by that speed. So that's part of it that you, you're going fast. You, 
you didn't have to stop in these small towns. The, the limited access highways just passed right through the, or over them, actually. Yeah. And yeah. when you did get off, the places where you ate and got gas and got a room for the night tended to be these standardized national chains, increasingly. Uh, so holiday inns and things like that. Exactly. Eventually. Right. And what that meant was that if you were discriminated against by some mom and pop diner, um, you didn't have much recourse. You could, who were you going to talk to? Who, what were uh, you, exactly. what, what, what pressure were you going to bring to bear on an enterprise like that, that, you know, doesn't, they'll say, we don't need your business. But mm -hmm. if McDonald's or Holiday Inn or Chevron discriminates against you, the boycott pressure that an organization like the NAACP or other local organizations, civil rights organizations, could bring to bear on this big national chain, well, that was something. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. And it was done sometimes. Yeah. And so the, the interesting thing is that the interstate highway system, which in American cities destroyed so many African-American communities. Yeah. Um, Miami, Detroit, um, New Orleans, Baltimore. I mean, all over the country, you had this, you know, this, they called it, you know, white man's road through a black man's home. The oh, interstate oh, destroyed yeah. so many communities. But the flip side of that was that when drivers of color were on the interstate, they had a freedom of movement that they had not been able to experience before. Now, it wasn't just the roads. It was the roads in conjunction with activism and legislation. Okay, um, well, that's what I was going to ask. Did the, even though there was a lot more, there was a lot of movement in the civil rights uh, uh, activism, people coming down from the north, people going places to, to protest, when they, if they found something that would have been in the Green Book negatively, they would have protested against it directly and openly. Yeah, there, although there wasn't there wasn't negative stuff in the, there were no listings of of uh, you know bad or discriminatory businesses in the Green Book. Oh, okay. okay. Um, they would you know they just wouldn't mention a place. Um, but you know later on this one uh, it was a tremendous uh, public relations gaffe of international proportions when in 1957. Uh, in suburban D.C., uh, a man of, of, of African descent was refused service at a Howard Johnson. And oh, yeah, yeah. it turned out he was the, he was the finance minister of the new nation of Ghana. <laughs> so, oh, right. it, and of course, this is during the Cold War when the United States is really appealing to people of color around the world, you know, come over to our side. We're, we're, we're the land of the free. We're, you know, yeah. um, and, and the Soviet Union is just hammering the United States with propaganda, um, accusing the United States of of racial discrimination, and the, the propaganda is real. Um, wow. Something like that is a real um, a real demerit for the United States to have that to have something like that happen. So there's also pressure from the federal government, and I, I right. um, and I'm borrowing here from uh, 
recent history of the civil rights movement that really thinks about the way in which the state was um, not exactly a driver of civil rights change, but was very accommodating to civil rights change because it dovetailed with its needs to present, um, you know, sort of a, a, a just and um, sympathetic face abroad. The state, you mean the, the national government, yeah. not the state it, governments and you know, exactly. individual state governments. That's well, right. When do things, can we put a rough date on or rough year on when things start to improve? Is it 1960? Is it 1965? Is it as late as 1970? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's the, I would say it's the mid to late sixties. And it's, and it's also Uh because there's all sorts of, um, the various civil rights and voting rights act. Um, and also you have all sorts of legislation just making it really much harder to discriminate. Yeah. Um, in various commercial enterprises, public and private. Mm-hmm. And so there's much more legal pressure that can be brought, brought to bear with, these, with this new legislation that, you know, discrimination becomes, you know, in things like housing and uh, that, so that move towards uh, anti-discrimination law is going to affect travelers on the road. So, yeah, it's, 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 the, mid, it's the mid to late 60s. Has anything ever sort of regressed? Does there need to be a period in the seventies or the eighties or nineties even when, when somebody has to stand up and say, "Look, don't visit this town or watch out for this place because of um, you know racial abuse." So, in the middle of the nineteen sixties, the people of color driving automobiles becomes in many ways a, a catalyst for um, uh, a backlash by police or um, fear on the part of, of, of white citizens. And uh, if you think about a place like Los Angeles in the middle of the 1960s, one of the first you know, major conflagrations yeah. happens because um, a police officer, officer pulls over um, a man and a pregnant woman and this escalates and eventually leads to rioting. And so one of the things that we really have to think about in the United States is what it means for somebody to be in the driver's seat. Oh, okay. It means a certain amount of agency and power, but it also means that you're sort of immediately under surveillance and potentially um, under some sort of action by the, by the government. And so it's always both... An, an empowering place or an empowered place, but also really precarious. Yeah. And uh, what we see is over the past few decades, since since the rise and, and then demise of these, these African-American travel guides, is that driving a car is, is still uh, can be a very... Uh, very fraught thing uh-huh. for, for people of color precisely because it subjects you to that surveillance by police and, um, and, and because it signifies a certain amount of freedom. Right. So, yeah, we, we've seen this time and again. I mean, it, all the, the recent deaths of somebody like Philando Castile, mm-hmm. Sandra Bland, and the, 
Philander Castillo in Minnesota, Sandra Bland in Texas. Um, and in Missouri over the past few years, there have been a number of incidents that have involved violence against uh, African-American drivers by police that prompted the national chapter of the NAACPs to, to issue a travel advisory um, about Missouri in the summer of last year. Oh, wow. So that recent. Yeah, it's, 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 it's still very much with us. The, the phenomenon of driving while black and the, and the way that, that that can be a very threatening thing. Um, it's still very much with us. So, I mean, your book is entitled the, the Republic of Drivers and it's about the transformation uh, in the 20th century, but really there are these transformations and there are a lot of things going on. It's not as if all of a sudden after the, the model T and after world war two, eventually everyone is out there motoring, enjoying themselves. It, you know, it, it must be this separate sort of issue and or separate, but parallel experience for people. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of, one of the things that happens over the course of the 20th century is that driving beca- becomes synonymous with freedom, and mm-hmm. it also becomes compulsory. Yes, that's right. You it have becomes, to have a driver's license for everything. Not just you have drivers. to have a driver's license for everything. And for, I would say, most of the workforce, you're still people are still driving to work, yeah. driving yeah. to the store, driving to the mall, driving, you know... Um, kids to school. We live in, you know, one of the one of the terms I use in the book is we we've built landscapes of compulsory automobility. Yes, absolutely. It's not, it's not about freedom anymore. It's about okay, we have to do this. Tied to the car, yeah. That's right. So if you if you can join that with, well, here's there are various groups in American society that don't have this same access to these performances of freedom. And well, then what do we do if if we build these landscapes where you have to have a car? Um, who do we leave out? And um, wh- also, what does that say about us? And my sense is what it says about us is that we're committed to to thinking ourselves free, and yeah. that's sort of who we are as Americans. Mm-hmm. And one of the really interesting things, though, is now I'm seeing how we're coming to a close of the era of automobility. Oh, really? I, I'm, I'm convinced of it, that it doesn't, for a long time, it hasn't provided the type of satisfactions that it's supposed to provide, which is freedom and escape and autonomy and mastery and agency and, and all these things. Upward now mobility. It's basically, yeah, yeah. yeah, we're sitting, we're sitting in traffic, we're, you know, even in the suburbs, which are now some of the most traffic-ridden places in the country, there were supposed to be places where you got away from the yeah, crush of yeah. the crowd and um, the traffic. It's not like that anymore. No, not at all. And also, there's no political will to transform our transport infrastructure. Yeah, that's right. That's right. When, when the interstate highway system was built, it was more or less unanimous that this is something we need to do for this thing called the public. Yeah. And there's no sense of the public anymore. And there's certainly nobody who wants to invest in infrastructure. I mean, nobody really, yeah. <laughs> they, they might say they do, but they <laughs> don't right. really. Yeah. You um, can't get very far claiming that you want to have that you want to build, right. spend money on public transportation. 
That's right. Or, or even to sort of, you know, rethink and reorganize how we move around, which if you go to, you know, Europe or, or goodness knows China, which is building its own system of automobility right now that's going to dwarf ours, but they're also building high-speed trains and all sorts of yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, mass transit that is really kind of, I mean, our transport infrastructure in this country is shameful. Yeah, absolutely. And even if you're sort of a rah-rah, you know, number one USA, we are really falling behind in a, in a pretty, um, as someone would say, it's very sad yeah, that's <laughs> um, true. that this is happening. But um, yeah, the, the I also see that one of the things that's taken the place of automobility is the internet, which used to be called the information superhighway. Uh, that, that's right. Yeah, that's a place where I see it in my students that they can they can they'd much rather be virtually mobile than actually mobile. Um, very few of my students care anymore about a car. A car is, if it's anything to them, it's kind of an encumbrance. Oh, and that, that's interesting. And they'd much rather, you know, if I need a car, I'll, I'll rent one or I'll use Zipcar or something like that. But in terms of the way that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 50 years old. So I think about when I was getting my driver's license, that was freedom. Oh, oh yeah. And that's absolutely a, the marker of freedom. Yeah. And it was a way I could I'd go see my friends. I'm not stuck. I, I can be mobile. But people are mobile on their devices now. They can be literally ubiquitous, and you don't have to actually have your body there. So I see, I see all sorts of changes happening now, and I think it's, it's, it's terrifying the automakers because oh, sure. new car sales are way, way down. And we're obviously going to have to have cars, you know, whether they're autonomous cars. But that's another, that's another thing that, well, who's going to pay for that transition to the infrastructure that autonomous vehicles will require? Well, nobody's stepping up to do that. Google's yeah, not well, going to do it, and the manufacturers aren't going to Google do it. Google cars. Yeah. I mean, so, so I see this era of automobility is coming to a close, and it's very difficult to see what's going to replace it in terms of a, of a sort of mass phenomenon in the way that automobility has been. Well, the history of what's going to replace it and how it's going to be replaced will be the subject of your next book. I'm uh, moving on to other things, but, but <laughs> okay. this is for, okay. I, I look forward to other scholars exploring this. I'm, I'm obviously fascinated by it. On that note, I should say to our listeners that your book, Republic of Drivers, is on the Buzzkill bookshelf and they can get it there. And it's all been very fascinating. It just remains for me to thank you, Professor. It's been a wonderful episode, and we're bound to get lots of good comments on it. Great. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll say to the buzzkillers out there that we'll talk to you next week. 